your food safety plan is a living document, okay? Mm-hmm. And that implies one very critical thing, that you should be constantly assessing the efficacy and robustness of your food safety plan um, through what I call corrective actions. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, this episode of the Feed Science Podcast Show. Uh, my name is uh, Wilmer Pacheco, and I'm uh, your host today. And today I have the, the pleasure to um, talk with um, a good colleague, a good friend uh, with Jared. Uh, hello, Jared. How are you doing? I'm well, Wilmer. How are you? Everything is good. Cold here in, in, in Alabama, but I imagine that it's not as cold as uh, where you are, I think, Indianapolis, right? Well, yeah, I'm currently in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, I've rented a, an apartment uh, for one of my businesses. I've, I'm spending some time out here driving sales for this year. So um, I guess you can say I've got two houses right now. And uh, right now I'm, I'm enjoying my time in sunny Wichita. That's good. Uh, well, you know, like uh, first, Jared, uh, could you, uh, you know, for our audience, uh, could you just uh, tell us a little bit more about your, uh, you know, your professional experience and uh, maybe what, about what you are doing right now? Yeah. So um, obviously I went to, to the Kansas State um, uh, probably one of the finest, most premier organizations, uh, universities in the world. Anyway, I, I digress. Uh, <laughs> I studied at Keith Minky for both bachelor's and master's. I, I spent some time at Purina and process research. Um, so, and then I, I got into the world of vitamins and premixes with, at the time, would have been Roche, and now it's transformed into DSM, obviously. And um, I did some time in the liquid feed business and learned that business out in Garden City, Kansas. And then I had the opportunity to go to Elanco and uh, uh, probably probably one of the more enjoyable stints I've had in my career. And the fact that I got to work with customers in 23 countries around the globe. So um, uh, and then in 21, I decided I was just. I'm done with the corporate world for a bit, and I went out and I have my own consulting practice, and then I also have a small uh, premix manufacturing company with uh, four of the partners. So um, this will be year four for uh, the businesses, and uh, I've really enjoyed it, Wilmer, in the sense that uh, run starting your own business is uh, it's a whole nother layer of uh, experiences, challenges, and, and, and just generally learnings. I think with, I think with the form that I filled out yesterday, I, I, I come at this 
the one question, what are you an expert in? Well, I can tell you after running your own business, I'm not an expert in anything. Um, I'm learning every day. So uh, in conclusion, I'm kind of hoping I'm, I'm applying for the, the head coach position over at Alabama. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to go, Wilmer. It could be, we'll see. I could be your neighbor. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. That would be great, uh, Jared. I mean, it, it would be good. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, Alabama is warmer than, than Wichita probably, too. Yeah, it was uh, terribly cold here this last week. I mean, it got down to 10 below one night. It was terrible. So, yeah. but hey, what's that's life, right? But, but you know, like, uh, I know, like, you got a lot of experience in the, in the feed industry, Jared. And, um, you know, something that probably is important for our audience is to maybe get your thoughts on uh, what do you think are the main opportunities and challenges that you see in the feed industry today and also in future, in, in future years? Well, I think a couple of things. One, I would say if it should be on everyone's mind, and I think it is, it's this regulatory environment. Um, especially in the last three years, we've seen a significant increase in regulatory activity. Um, I do see some concerning things on, on the horizon. I, I've been reading a bit that FDA wants to, to now make all feed ingredients go through the dossier process, similar to what we see in the EU, um, which is going to put a significant encumbrance upon the industry. Um, especially when you have professional nutritionists such as yourself that can make these decisions and now everything has to go through the lens of the FDA. I mean, it's a significant problem. I hope this doesn't come through. But I also see this problem rolling into the feed mills and um, some of the people I work with, I know a good portion of them, they just don't have the, the technical expertise to um, – to manage some of this increasing regulatory concern, uh, especially when it comes to FISMA. Um, so that is a concern. I think at parallel, um, I, I think the low margins that we see right now across the industry, um, it's not helping matters. I mean, obviously reinvestment back into the business from a capital expenditure um, for sure right now would be something that I would probably question. And then the second thing is, is that this goes back to the regulatory thing, Wilmer, that um, mm -hmm. to have people on staff to do these, this increased regulatory burden requires margins. A business isn't a, a not-for-profit. If you're not making money, why are you in business? And so this is a real concern that I see, and I, I do see some excess capacity going to have to be drained from the industry if we don't if we don't fix this low margin problem. Yeah, and I mean you are you are touching a really good um, important topic, which is uh, you know FISMA. Um, 
and I know like you had the opportunity to visit several uh, feed mills. Uh, how do you see them? Uh, you know, um, because right now they they have to be co- in compliance with good manufacturing uh, practices, and also they they really need to have a food safety plan in place, right? Um, what will be your um, your advice for them when they are writing uh, those food safety plans, or what changes they need to do? You know, with um, in their food safety plans. So right now, I see a pretty clear um, line of demarcation with the food safety plans. I, I the, the big companies they have all the resources for the food safety plans. And, and it, it, okay, let's start at the fundamentals. There's a general sense within these food safety plans that once I write a food safety plan, I can put it on the shelf and I put three years down on my food safety plan. And then I go back and look at it and say, well, I don't need to change much. Okay. So there's this three year deadline thing that hangs out there. The problem is, is that that's not what the regulations read. The the regulations require that your food safety plan is a living document, okay? Mm -hmm. And that implies one very critical thing, that you should be constantly assessing the efficacy and robustness of your food safety plan um, through what I call corrective actions, okay? So if I look at some of the big entities, um, you know, I'd say the multinational conglomerates, they have a whole staff of people whose job is to go around and put together corrective actions. And then the people in the plants are the ones that have to implement the corrective actions. And there's always this cycle of assessing, analyzing, correcting, and then reviewing. Okay. But then again, let's go back to these small entities that they, they don't have the resources for this, that they don't understand what it means to have a, a corrective action. And so all they're focused in on is making money because they have to keep the doors open. So this is going to become a real problem. And it's really going to kind of sharpen as I see another trend that's coming. For years, Third-party certification was really the domain of the premix companies, of the ingredient suppliers. So, you know, if I was going to buy, say, chelated minerals from Zinpro, right, then as a quality person or as a nutritionist, that that SQF or uh, FAMIQS certification, that third-party certification, meant something to me. Um the premix companies have had to adopt this third-party certification. And obviously, me coming out of DSM, they've got a, one of the finest quality systems in the world, and it's FAMIQS. So, but now this third-party certification, it's rolling over to the feed mills. And so now you have this extra layer of regulatory concern where some of these feed mills, they don't even understand how a food safety plan works. Now they're going to have to have third-party certification by some of these outside agencies like SQF or whatever 
they're just not, they're not ready that they're just not, uh, they don't have the tools to, to deal with this. Does that make sense, Wilmer? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what, I, what I'm thinking too, is like, um, as you were saying, you know, like this is a living document, right? And, um, let's say if you got like a commercial feed bill and then they are making a new, you know, like a new product or they are using new ingredients or, you know, like the, the area where they are uh, sourcing the ingredients, they might be like a higher prevalence of, uh, mycotoxins, for example, then they need to take all that into to considerations to to make changes, you know, in the food safety planning and in the hazard analysis. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about the mycotoxins for a yeah. minute, okay? Yeah. Obviously, that's a key focus for um, FDA mm-hmm. and for the state regulatory agencies. Interestingly enough, if you read the regulations, if you follow the way a food safety plan should work is if you analyze your data, if you collect your data and you analyze it, you don't need to measure aflatoxin in every truck if there's not a perceived risk, as long as you assess it and manage the risk. But there again, we get into this mindset that, well, I guess I have to test every truck for aflatoxin. Nobody looks at the data. So you have reams of data that nobody's looking at and they really don't know what the risk is. So, um, you know, let me ask you a question in, in, in northern Illinois. Where, what's your concern? Is it aflatoxin? What, what's your concern, Wilmer? It's probably not aflatoxin, right? I mean, I mean, for me, typically when when I see the meals, I'm always gonna check, you know, DON and lease and uh, aflatoxin if we are in uh, poultry feed meals. But like, uh, if you are like producing, um, let's say, feed for swine, then you gotta pay attention to the seralenon. Uh, but as you're saying, I mean, depending on where we are getting the grains, right? We need yes. to see what are the prevalence there and then focus on on that. Maybe this year we are going to be paying more attention to aflatoxin. Next year we are going to be paying attention to another mycotoxin, depending on the prevalence. So if you go look in the regulations, right, there's always this discussion about a, a food safety team, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and therein, therein is another problem is that, you know, and, and, and I have to give a shout out to, to DSM, I, their approach they were ahead of the game on this when FISMA was published or, or brought into to, into the real world. And their teams, their cross-functional teams, that they, they cover quality, production, um, technical, or as far, as far as nutrition, purchasing is involved. Um, should purchasing be involved in your food safety plan, Wilmer? What do you think? I think it's important. It's important because, uh, I mean, uh, you might get an ingredient that could be cheaper, but higher risk, for example. But I don't, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think everybody needs to get involved, not only in the food safety plan, but also, you know, in all the layers of of a company, you know, when they take decisions, you know, in order to maintain the, the company profitable. Exactly. And, and, and let's go a, a step deeper. Purchasing buys products according to standards that are set and by price. That's, that's how they buy it. Okay. So if you don't communicate that with these data set, with this data set, 
that this particular vendor of corn poses a risk for aflatoxin, well, how is purchasing supposed to know? They should be involved in these discussions as well as anybody else. And, and something that, uh, you know, just came to my mind also, Jared, is like, uh, and I think this is important for all the feed mills too, is to have like ingredient definitions for all the ingredients that they use. And within those ingredient definitions, they can put like basics for rejection. And that's, you know, then in the basic for, for rejection, they can include what will be the maximum levels of aflatoxin that they will accept or DON, or what will be the maximum level of fiber. So you can put like some fa- safety layer there, but also some uh, nutritional layers. You know, what will be the maximum of moisture or what will be the minimum of protein, et cetera, et cetera. So that might be like a good way uh, where they can start to just having good ingredient definitions that, you know, like the people buying the ingredients understand what are the expectations. That, that is a really good point, Wilmer. And, and I think, too, that that's another area that's going to need some, some shoring up in the sense that when you do your risk assessment for, say, aflatoxins, you can't just assess the risk um, one-dimensionally and say, okay, I, I've got an average of 20 parts per, per, per billion, um, billion with a standard deviation. No, you, you have to actually look at the inclusion of that ingredient within a diet to assess what the harm or the potential harm is to the animal, okay? And so I, I don't, obviously right now, I don't work with a lot of the integrators, but um, I do work with commercial feed mills and, and we look at a broad spectrum package. We look at a swine ration, a poultry ration, a layer ration, dairy and beef, okay? Because each of those species has a varying degree of tolerance to aflatoxins, right? Mm -hmm. Now, your point about the nutritional thing, okay, that's another challenge that right now I'm working through with some clients in the sense that they should be analyzing their um, ingredient draws, okay, that come through the batching system. And Wilmer, how many times when you were a female manager, did, did you turn, you know, you came off shift and you're like, okay, I've got all these formulas that I manufactured. You didn't really analyze it. You just looked for any glaring problems and you signed off on the ticket, right? Yeah. I mean, when you are formulating uh, or when you are at the feed mill, you are mainly paying attention to make sure that you don't have like the variances, right? That the variances are within the, you know, the levels that you already defined, but you're right. I mean, uh, once that you are in the feed mill, you, you are not looking, you know, what is the protein content of uh, a specific diet leaving the mixer, right? Because you are expecting that that was considered um, when you got the ingredients and you analyze the ingredients. Um, but one of my point there is, Jared, is that, even when you are analyzing the ingredients, you don't need to analyze them the same, <laughs> you know, like don't have like a completely um, quality control where you are going to say, well, I'm going to be analyzing corn uh, every day, you know, in a composite sample or soybean meal every day uh, from a composite sample because you might have ingredients that are more, more variable than others. And then if you got ingredients that are more variable in composition, 
then you need to analyze them more often. I agree with you 100%. The less variable. <laughs> and, yeah. and again, so let's dial this back a little bit to FISMA. What does FISMA tell us that we're required to do? We are required to prevent a hazard. Now, it can be a physical hazard, right? It, mm-hmm. it could be a chemical hazard, but also it could be a nutritional hazard, correct? So. Yeah. Let's dial in a little bit to the poultry side. If your live production guys are telling you that you've got wet litter out there, well, that's a, that's a problem for Visma, right? <laughs> because you've affected the nutritional health of that animal, and that has to be dealt with. So continuously sending mm-hmm. out feed that has a, a bad level or an improper level of um, sodium, which causes wet litter, guess what? You need to assess the risk. Look at the data, put a corrective action together, and fix the problem. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, like something that is nice with FISMA too uh, is that, you know, when you look those hazards, you can, if you got, uh, because something that we haven't discussed are like good manufacturing practices, right? Which is uh, one of their prerequisites programs. So the good thing is like um, you can identify these hazards. And then you can control those hazards or just reduce, you know, the probability or the severity, uh, having good manufacturing practices. So um, maybe, you know, like um, analyzing mixing uniformity or analyzing the levels of salt, uh, which is a good manufacturing practice can help to prevent that hazard. But something that once that comes to my mind right now, Jared, is uh, copper. Yeah, you know, like uh, toxicity because um, when you look um, the uh, poultry diets, we use more copper. You know, uh, probably pigs also. Uh, I think we can use maybe like up to one hundred twenty-five ppm. But uh, if you are pro- if you have a commercial feed mill and you are also producing feed for sheep, then that's an issue because they are gonna be. Um, uh, prone to copper toxicity if you don't wash, you know, the way that you are bashing and mixing those those feeds or even the way that you are doing uh, probably the sequencing when you are producing those feeds. Okay, that's a really good point. And you know what? Let's, let's yeah. go a step further because this is one that nobody is looking at. My favorite molecule in the world is 25-hydroxy-D3, Okay. Mm-hmm. If I could yep. eat 25-hydroxy-D3, I would eat it every day. The problem is in humans, horses, correct, um, it causes calcification of soft tissue. Dogs, it, it does it to dogs. Mm-hmm. So if yep. you have a commercial mm-hmm. feed mill and you're manufacturing horse feed and you've got uh, 25-hydroxy-D3 in there, that's a risk, Right. It's not like Remensen, but it's a potential risk. That's what I was going to say, or Monensin, right? If you are, um, have a commercial feed meal and, and then you are producing um, feed for chicken and horses, then you got to pay attention to that Monensin. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, yeah. I'm, if I'm making chicken feed and I think, well, I don't have any Monensin um, in the chicken feed, I can go ahead and run it and it's got 25-hydroxy-D3 in there. And then you make horse feed immediately after, that's a risk. That's a significant risk for horses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think their tolerance is in the part per trillion range, correct? 
I don't remember the number right now, but they are very susceptible. Yeah. Very sensitive yeah. to that yeah. molecule. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, w- one thing that maybe just to expand on this topic, um, Jared, um, what do you think that um, the companies can do? Because um, some of the challenges that myself I see is like a lot of, uh, you know, employee turnover. And then you always get like the new employees that they need to be retrained, you know, with this, uh, not only with the FISMA, but also with other rules in the feed industry. So what do you think that the companies can do to, to train the employees? Yeah, I mean, this is always, this is really the age-old, pro- age-old problem, especially mm-hmm. within the, in the feed industry, because obviously the, the, the pool of people that, that would work in a dirty feed mill um, it's not the same caliber of people that are going to work at, say, at, say an, an automotive plant, okay? However, that being said, it comes down to culture, Wilmer, okay? If my feed mill is filthy and it looks like a shithole, that's the employee that I'm going to attract, Okay? Mm-hmm. it's not about the benefits. It's not about the pay. At the end of the day, go into the break room. Go into the break room of your facility. If that is a rat-infested break room with bugs and cockroaches and stuff like that, well, do you want to work in there, Mr. Manager? I don't want to work in there. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to that culture. If you can can change your culture, if, if you take pride in your facility, which is part of FISMA, which is part of OSHA, and you keep your facility clean and you keep things well maintained, you can now attract a, a group of people that want to work there. Okay? And, and when they want to work there, they'll stay there. And now your problem of the revolving door... Uh, begins to go away. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I I, I fully agree with that, um, Jared. Because I, I used when I was working in um in the field mill in North Carolina, um, what I would tell the employees is like you know like sometimes you spend more time in the field mill than at, at home, particularly if you are working like twelve hours uh, per shift. So it, it is really good to create this culture of, you know, keeping, you know, the area clean. And also the other thing that you mentioned about the maintenance, because maintenance is extremely important. If you got like too many leaks to fix, then the, the feed mill is going to be uh, dirty. And uh, I mean, you are going to have higher risk, um, not only from FISMA, but also from OSHA, right? So Correct. I think you, you you are bringing a good point there on, the, the importance of housekeeping and a good preventive and corrective uh, maintenance program. Exactly. I mean, look, it's not that hard to clean the floor. And I understand that we have aging facilities in this industry, but they're also our facilities. And, you know, when I've traveled overseas, especially in Latin America, I tell you, there's some pretty outstanding facilities in Latin America. And they're not fancy, but they're clean and they're well-maintained. 
And that's a culture in Latin America that I specifically enjoy to see that, okay? Because, and I wish, I wish the United States, we would start looking at doing more of that. Now, there are good facilities out there. I work with some good facilities that keep their facilities clean and well-maintained. But I also work with others that they need to spend more time doing that. Yeah, no, and I, I think you're bringing a good point, and uh, maybe... You know, from the university side, we probably need to do more, uh, you know, training people in the smaller facilities. Um, because, you know, like um, sometimes they got a lot of different issues and then they need to focus on, okay, you know, like if I'm not doing this, what is the risk, right? That way they can uh, focus on the most important things, I think. Uh, what about, what? here's an idea for the managers, all right? How about the managers go out and pick up a broom and go sweep? Um, how about the managers show the employees that they care about their facility? Okay. And, and I know that there's good managers out there, but I also know quite a few managers that like to ride a desk. Okay. So uh, that facility is a reflection of you as a manager. Get out, go clean the floor with your people and lead them from the bottom up. And then the culture will change. Well, and uh, I use that analogy a lot, uh, Jared, because I mean, I, I go like to some fitness in Latin America too. And uh, where I see that sometimes they have a challenge and I don't know if you have seen it too, but it's like with the, with the grain sweepers uh, to, you know, to clean the silos. And um, I always tell them, you know, if you want to fix, you know, the, the the grain sweepers, you need to get into the bin with the people that is cleaning. And once that it becomes your problem, then you are going to fix it. Because sometimes it's because, like, the screws don't work or, you know, there are so many different issues. Um, I think, as you're saying, um, you know, um, it, it's good for the managers to, to go around the facility and also... Sometimes they can, uh, they get more used to like, how does the facility sounds in different areas, right? So they might have like an air leak one day or they might have like a steam leak. So as they go and maybe, you know, cleaning the facility or just walking around, uh, then they can find other problems. And uh, that helps out to improve the productivity of that facility. It does. It does. And, and yep. now, now you're, you're creating a culture, and this just goes right back to the very beginning, um, where you're creating a culture of assessing your risk, assessing your situation, putting together corrective actions, and implementing those corrective actions. And it all starts with the manager. That's who it starts with. And, uh, you know, just another topic that I would like to discuss with you, uh, Jared, I mean, because you got a lot of experience. Um, have you seen, you know, like uh, opportunities, um, you know, in, in the feed industry to maybe like, especially improve pellet quality, right? Because, you know, pellet quality influences um, the growth performance and maybe like some opportunities that you have seen uh, in batching and mixing. Well, so let's let's talk a little bit about pellet quality. So I, I've seen some positive developments in the last five to six years. Um, I think that there's been a body of work. Um, I've done a little bit of stuff. You've done quite a bit. I think, uh, what's the fellow out of uh, West Virginia? Uh, Joe Moritz. 
Joe Moritz has done some really good stuff. Um, the industry is beginning to, to, to understand the concept of steam. Okay. It's starting to understand the concept of conditioning. So as, as I've been around, I, I see that, that we're no longer sitting so much dogmatically. Um, I'm sorry. We're not sitting so dogmatically on a temperature like 185. We still have that problem, mm-hmm. but um, we, I see the industry beginning to understand that conditioning is about making a good pellet. So I am encouraged. Uh, I do see that we're caring a bit more about that. Um, I think I look at it a little differently the older I get. And, and I'm going to talk about integrated for a moment. The, the, the chicken is our customer. Okay. And the, the pig is our customer. I mean, we still have customers. And that customer is going to tell us how good of a job we do with pellet quality through growth performance. That, that's how it works. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I'm, I'm positively encouraged um, along those lines. Mixed uniformity. Uh, so I'm probably a little different. Uh, I... I over the years, I don't get hung up on this 10% and lower CV crap. I mean, obviously, we need to do a good job mixing, but I think that 10% or less CV thing has become dogmatic, and I don't know if it's achievable, to be honest with you. I think the number should be moved to 15% is what I think. Yeah, what, what I have seen, uh, Jared, um, you know, from my site in, um, regarding mixing, Typically, what I see is like uh, the problems typically don't happen in the mixer. You know, like uh, if you got like uh, the the mixer is in um, is good, and then the RPMs. I, I I look a lot the RPMs right now because I have seen some feed mills that have like twenty to twenty two RPMs. Not here in the US, but uh, you know, in Latin America. Um, what I have seen typically is like they should be more like from thirty three to thirty seven RPMs, and. Uh, I, I have the feeling like if the condition of the mixer is good and then the RPMs are good, when you see problems with mixer uniformity, they are not occurring in the mixer. They are occurring somewhere else. Maybe uh, you have like a gate that is leaking into the mixer or you maybe have like the mixer that is not opening or closing correctly. So um, that's something, that, or maybe they are not adding ingredients in the correct order, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, um, um, yeah. And, and the other thing is, uh, it depends on how many grams the animal is, is, is consuming for me it will be very important. If you are feeding a day old chick to have a good uniformity, um, feed, right? Because they are only going to be consuming 10 grams to 12 grams the first night. So you got to make sure that you get everything there. Uh, all their animals, maybe like pigs that are, they are consuming more than, I think more than a kilogram. Uh, I don't remember, but if you got some differences in mixer uniformity, then you can correct those or the animal will correct those differences with a higher feed intake. That, that's why, I, I mean, I, I, I don't like that 10%. That being said, I, I think I, I do like your comment on, on the revolutions, the RPM. And if you go back to uh-huh. literature, um, some of the earliest work, good work, done by Harry Post out of Kansas State back in the 60s, uh, 
Um, that's 1960s, Wilmer, right? Um, yeah. They focused on the absolute number of revolutions um, for the mix. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I do think that that's kind of been lost in the industry. Again, we focused on mixed times and efficiencies, but yeah, it's, I, 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 that's area that I wouldn't be afraid to look at again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, another endemic problem that I still fight, and it just, I cannot believe it. After all of these years, there are still feed mills that do not understand the concept of dry mix versus a wet mix. They mm-hmm. put everything in, including their liquids, turn the mixer on for two minutes, and then there you go. So then all of a sudden, we've got wet litter in the house, okay? We've got terrible uh, um, efficiency again. I mean, and then pretty soon people are saying, what's going on? Well, I don't know. I'm mixing it for two minutes. Well, that's true. But you're mixing everything together. And mixing theory, and this goes back to Harry Post stuff, you cannot, once you put that liquid in that mixer, the distribution of dry ingredients stops. It, it, it is, you get lumping, you get caking, it's it's over. So that is an area that I do still think is an opportunity because it happens more than we want to let know. Well, you know, what is the, uh, I, I would say the funny thing about this is that it's really easy to correct because uh, a lot of the feed mills are doing all the bashing and mixing uh, using an automation system and then you can easily make those changes, you know, in the automation system. So you can ask, well, all the dry ingredients enter, then at least 30 seconds, depending on the type of the mixer, dry cycle, then you apply your liquids, right? So some of these things are very easy to change uh, and don't cause anything to a feed mill. That is an interesting point because actually it's a far bigger concern than what we let on because Let's say we have a feed mill that's putting all the ingredients in, including the liquids, and they're mixing for two minutes, okay? So then I show up and I say, no, you can't do that. You have to have two minutes dry mix or a minute dry mix. and the two minute. minutes dry mix. So I've now increased their batch cycle by 30%, okay? Or 25%, whatever the number is. Well, if I'm running 24 hours a day, six days a week, I've now added the amount of time for the same amount of feed, I now go to seven days a week, okay? Yeah. So now we're at a situation where I'm paying more overtime, okay? And I don't know, to be honest with you, when you start to push a facility, most of these big integrators are probably running at what? 85, 87% mm-hmm. capacity? And now all of a sudden you add on 25% time requirement, they can't do yeah. it. No, but you know, like um, what I see typically, Jared, is that, you know, uh, the facilities that are pelleting feet, uh, the bashing system shouldn't be the bottleneck. Uh, the, the bottleneck should be pelleting, right? And um, yeah. uh, that's, they need to they need to go and look, you know, where are the bottlenecks and um, maybe there are going to be some facilities as you described that cannot do it, but there are going to be others that could easily maybe like do 30 seconds of dry cycle and then 90 seconds of wet cycle and end up in two minutes 
uh, but with better um, better mixer uniformity. The other thing that I think sometimes we forget, Jared, is that um, the most expensive is the feed ingredients. So, like, uh, let's imagine that if we are mixing a diet that uh, a ton costs five hundred dollars, and we don't mix it well, we are potentially losing a lot of dollars uh, oh, there. Terrible, yeah. absolutely. I always, I, I always like to make, uh, you know, like my calculation, and. Um, if you got like a, one of the biggest feed mill in the U.S., they are going to be making uh, 25,000 tons per week. If you multiply that by $500 per ton, just making it easier, that feed mill runs about $12 million in ingredients in one week. In a year, it's more than, a, it's like 600 millions. So uh, sometimes that's, and that's what I like this, you know, like the processing, because you can make a small change and then you, even if the improvement is like in pennies, it's a lot of money at the end of the year for a, for a company. It is. And, you know, I had this picture years ago. This came from Roche, and I always loved this picture. Did you know that the amount of biotin, of pure D-biotin, that a sow consumes in the course of a year, okay, to meet their nutritional requirement will fit on your thumb. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let that yep. sink in to your point, Wilmer. That's the amount of biotin for that sow for 300, over a 365 day period. And we don't pay attention to what we're mixing. It's a good point. Yeah, I mean, because it's a lot of money. I mean, we are dumping a lot of money into the mixer, you know, every few minutes. And um, we just, if we didn't mix it well, then some of that money is lost. My concern sometimes is that typically you don't see like a increasing mortality, uh, but you see like a poor feed efficiency and that's more difficult to measure. It is more difficult to measure, but then again, that also falls under the FISMA regulations. We're back to FISMA. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if, you, if you feed an animal a substandard diet and it affects performance, Obviously, it's not a recall event, but it still requires an investigation. It's time for our famous three. Livonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonics focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Well, you know, like Jared, I think I could speak with you the whole day, but I mean, uh, we, we have been uh, 40 minutes uh, already. Uh, so I would like to, you know, just... Uh, I have had the opportunity to have you here in Auburn um, when you were with Elanco and doing some uh, research project. And my students always enjoy, you know, interacting with you. Uh, they always remember you. So maybe, you know, what I would like to, to do just to, to finish the talk is like just to get some um, advice that you can provide, you know, for uh, graduate students, maybe undergrads that might be listening to the to the podcast and how they can get prepared better to um, to work in the industry or academia. 
Two things, and it really kind of depends on where they want to go in the industry. Um, number one, if you're going to go into feed mill management, fine. Go work as a, go work as an employee. You go get into that bin, like you just said. You go clean that floor, or where you have to clean out the tunnel. Okay. Um, I, I did an investigation on a on a on a dust explosion here a, a few years ago. And fatalities, they almost lost two employees. The employees, we found out, went into this tunnel every night to clean out the grain that had come out of the bottom of the conveyor that nobody wanted to fix. These kids should go clean that tunnel. And, you know, you clean a tunnel a couple of times, that'll be the last time that you let that place turn into a, a, a hellhole, okay? Okay. If you're going to go into the allied industries, okay, which I see eh, from what I see right now, the feed people, about half of them go allied industry. The other half go uh, into the feed mills. You need to go sell a product. You need to go out and you need to deal with customers and understand what customers needs are and learn the industry from that side. That is what I see is the two things that should be understood by these kids coming out. Yeah, and I'm just going to, I need to, you know, just give you like um, something that is important because you did mention it. Uh, go to every place in the feed mill, but also it's very important to spend time with the maintenance people. You know, every time that they go and change screens, go to change hammers, go and change pellet dies, or if there is a plug somewhere in the feed mill, go and understand what is going uh, on. That way they understand how the, the facility works, right? And uh, uh, they can they will be able to solve problems no no in a month after being in the facility but maybe one or two years after being in the facility they should be able to to solve you know the the the, the issues that arise my the the first guy that really trained me in industry was a guy named keith pike and i i think he's retired now um mm-hmm. um he was a case stater worked at purina slash land lakes his whole career he's a good man um my first year, first six months, he made me work with the maintenance people and facilities all over the Purina system. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much, so much. That's great advice. Go work with the maintenance guys, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that know that plant better than anybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jared, um, thank you uh, for us ac- accepting, uh, you know, participating in this podcast and it's always a, a pleasure to to speak with you and uh, share ideas absolutely Wilmer and listen when I get hired on at Bama to, to, to lead that football team there will always be tickets for you and your family at that game that sounds good thank you Jared I appreciate All right. it take care Wilmer thank you take care Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. 
Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.